And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Love the Cove podcast. And I'm Jane Chow Pomeroy. I'm Kathy Norman Peterson. As we're in Native American Heritage Month, we wanted to acknowledge whose ancestral land that we're on. We're on the land of the Kikapu, Peoria, Kaskaskia, Potawatomi, Miamia, Oshady, Shakovan, and the Ho-Chunk people. We're so excited about the conversation we had with our friend, the Reverend Dr. Michelle Clifton Soderstrom, talking about pietism and how the covenant grew from pietist roots. Michelle is the Dean of the Faculty at North Park Theological Seminary. She's a professor of theology and ethics, and in collaboration with her colleagues at the seminary, founded the School of Restorative Arts, where incarcerated students and outside students study together to earn a master's degree in Christian ministry. We asked Michelle specifically about her book, Angels, Worms, and Boogies, The Christian Ethic of Pietism. So dang, we made it to episode two. Two episodes. <laughs> I gotta be honest, something that was a little discouraging for me was hearing, why is why is Jane doing this podcast? You know, like she's not she's not a covenanter, you know, she's not one of us. And that in itself is why I wanted to do this podcast. Mm. Um, I think especially as a Taiwanese-born American woman, um, there's been in spaces in my life where I'm told I'm not enough or I'm not, you know, I'm not American I'm, or I'm not Taiwanese mm. um, when in fact I am both and I, I am also covenant. And so I'm really grateful to have this space. I think both of us have talked about how we want this to be an honest space for who the covenant is and why we love it. And uh, I, I'm really grateful for your voice. Thanks, Kathy. As we get started, we wanted to ask an age-old question. Uh, Covenanters have been asking this from the very beginning. So, Kathy, how goes your walk? I love this question because it really invites us to be in the space that we're in, as you were just saying. Well, right now, today, I'm carrying a bunch of heavy stories. It just feels like a, a friend's marriage is blowing up. And another young friend is really struggling with transitions and mental health. And this morning, a friend shared in our prayer group that uh, her spouse has a devastating diagnosis. And it just feels like there's a lot of suffering in this world. There's a lot of pain. And um, one friend was asking, like, I can't pray for a miracle, even though I want one. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, God, I don't know. And it was really uh, meaningful. This prayer group said, okay, we're going to hold you. We're going to pray with you. We're going to have faith with you. We're going to turn to God with all our questions and our pain and hold on for dear life together. And sometimes that's what faith looks like. So that's a really, today was a hard day, but that's how my walk is. How's yours, Jane? You mentioned that's what faith looks like. And I'm like, yeah, like that's what church looks like. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Um, when this episode dropped, I looked at the calendar and realized uh, that's the week of my birthday. birthday. (laughs) I am definitely not at all where I expected to be um, Mm -hmm. when imagining my life. When I look back, I I realize that I see the movement of God just all over it. Mm -hmm. Psalm 16, 5, 6 has come up for me, which is the Lord has chosen my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and I have a good heritage. Hmm. Choosing God has worked out for me. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and even this line, like the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Um, I heard about it as, you know, that as we get older, you know, as we get wrinkles on our face, that the wrinkles become evidence of this legacy that we have with God, this life that we've lived with God, where you know, no matter how hard things get, um, it was all worth it because I feel like with everything that I've been through, it's all given me more clarity on, on who God is. And because of that, like it's worth it. Hmm. In our first episode, I got the chance to share my story. This week, we're going to hear Kathy's journey into the covenant. So Kathy, when did you feel like you were covenant? When people ask how I found the covenant, my short answer is often to say I married in. My spouse's family has all the covenant credentials, all the Swedish immigrant heritage, more than one covenant pastor in the family, generations of covenant. Their roots are deep. So I grafted in, but for a long time, it wasn't really my church. I grew up Baptist. We were an independent congregation, not part of any larger group of Baptists. And my experience with denominations was limited to the Methodist church down the street where I attended sixth grade when our middle school building was under construction or the congregational church across town where I sang in the Sunshine Choir for a couple of years. In college, I encountered many like-minded evangelicals who had grown up in similar non-denominational settings. They read the Bible and approached the world the way I did. Individualistic, me and Jesus, middle class, mostly white. I was serious about my faith. I memorized chapters of scripture. I argued with friends saying that it didn't matter if they wanted to get up early to have their devotions. They had to because God demanded it. I once broke up with a guy because I decided he wasn't spiritual enough for me. But by the time I graduated, I was so tired. All that performance was exhausting. So when I met Kurt, he started telling me about the covenant, this place where they baptized adults and babies. That blew my Baptist mind. This place where they purposely chose not to let non-essentials divide them, where they communed with people who disagreed. I'd never heard of such a church. It all felt pretty foreign. As we began our lives together, we decided to make this church our home. To be honest, I kind of struggled at first. Kurt always wanted to join whatever congregation we were attending, and I just didn't get that. What if I wanted to leave? Why did we have to make such a big commitment? but I appreciated our local incarnations of the body of Christ. We worshiped and served and built friendships. But answering the question, how did you find the covenant by saying I married in was probably more telling than I realized. I think I assumed that my lack of history with the covenant, my lack of Swedishness, my inability to explain to anyone what pietism meant, meant I wasn't really part of the family. I've been working at covenant offices for nearly 14 years. 
Somewhere in there, when I wasn't paying attention, I became Covenant. I think that began when I met colleagues and writers and pastors who were new to the denomination. They didn't have deep roots here, and they loved the Cove. It happened on Sankofa, as I learned to intentionally look backward in order to move forward, listening to stories and history I'd never heard before. It happened in countless articles we worked on in the Covenant Companion, as I encountered a vast range of voices, experiences, backgrounds, and perspectives, all of whom identified as Covenant. And it's happening still, as I hear the voices of the Mosaic Commission helping us learn how to live into the six-fold test for multi-ethnic ministry in proximate, intentional ways. It's happening as we listen to Indigenous Covenant sisters and brothers sharing their generational pain generated by the church through the doctrine of discovery and the delegate this year's annual meeting who voted to repudiate that doctrine. Somewhere along the way, I learned that being a member of this denomination, becoming covenant, didn't mean fitting into a cookie cutter definition. It means a rich, creative embodiment of the kingdom of God here on earth. It means I'm not just grafted in. It means I belong. As a fellowship of 850 churches, we do sincerely seek to live a two-step rhythm to our faith, which some would technically and historically call missional pietism. That's former President Gary Walter at the 2014 annual meeting. We are pietists, which is is just a technical term. for those who are are deeply committed to cultivating that interior life with Christ, of entering into that relationship with God and and cultivating it, making it ever-deepening day by day, moment by moment as we walk with Jesus. And we're missional in that walk with Jesus. We don't believe in a privatized faith, but that when Jesus calls us to himself, he also calls us to join him in his mission to the world. And so that the simple two-step rhythm that we have nurtured, that has nurtured us since 1885, that simple two-step rhythm of being a missional pietist is to simply walk with God and for God, to go deeper in Christ and further in mission and of pursuing Christ and pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. I married into the covenant and I've heard a lot of terms about the covenant for a long time and I should be able to explain what pietism is and I don't know if I could except if I did some cheating and reread your book so um I'm wondering for anybody else that might be in similar space uh can you give us a like a little thumbnail sketch of what pietism is and maybe help us understand like why is it why is it so difficult to understand this movement in our context when i explain pietism to people um i think it's almost easier to say that pietism is caught not taught because Mm -hmm. it's an ethos um that has some amazing foci um including Uh, reading scripture in small groups uh, and understanding of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in one's life. And this 
expands to include people who have been historically marginalized, um, women, children, um, people with socioeconomic um, um, statuses that don't generally put them in dominant spaces. And so um, um, these kinds of things, um, the active priesthood, meaning that people are participating in the life of the church and that it's not just the pastor that's participating. So all of these things sort of make for a communion or a group of people who are who are practicing their faith. And then what emerges out of that practice is very contextual. And so that's why I think it's harder to say this is what pietism is, because it takes root in the context of the life of the believers and who's um, you know, participating in worship and who's participating in interpreting scripture, who's participating in encouraging each other um, to walk with Christ. Um, so to define pietism in a scholarly way, um, the jury is out on that as well, because some uh, scholars, historians would, would mark it, starting with um, Philip Jakob Spainer's Pia Desideria, which was originally the um, introduction to Johann Arndt's uh, True Christianity, and then mark it all the way probably, so that's the middle of the 16th century, and mark and, and go into about the, the 1800s. But then others, other people would say pietism is about renewal. It's fundamentally about relying on the Holy Spirit and the word of God um, in the life of the church and the life of believers. So in that context, it expands beyond the historical. And it's like pietism is, is another word for a renewal movement. The other thing that makes it interesting is that pietism can also be, it's a very ecumenical um, category uh, by definition, because what was happening when these renewal movements started, you know, and, and when I say renewal, I mean post-Reformation, right? So a lot of these movements are trying to, to regain what, what the Protestant Reformation was, was trying to gain. And so there's cross-fertilization happening, you know, across um, different ecclesial groups. Um, there are Jansenists and Quakers and, and all of these things have similar kinds of threads. And so all of these things make it hard to define. I think what makes it particularly, the, the influence on the covenant, of course, was Swedish Lutheran pietism and then German Lutheran pietism as well. And some of the key markers of those movements were, of course, the conventicles or the small groups who came together to read scripture, reflect sometimes with the pastor and give the pastor feedback. Um, and so this, I think, is the key marker that influences the covenant today and um, also was the one of the historical beginnings. And, and of course, small groups were started originally by lay people asking, you know, their pastors, can we, can we engage the word? And so Spainer is an example. He preached a sermon on why it's so important to read scripture. His congregants came to him and said, pastor, we want to read together in a small group. Happy Monday, right? Like that's the great Monday call. And, <laughs> and so that um, sort of was one of the launches of pietism, I mean, of, of conventicles. And of course, um, you know, Spainer was close with women and, you know, Johanna Eleanor Peterson is of course, one of my favorite women. And he encouraged her to, to read and to lead the first women's group. Um, she actually wrote the first biography of a woman in Germany. Um, and she taught herself Greek and Hebrew, and then she helped, you know, high school girls read. And so all of these sort of germinating things that bring people together in different ways and give them agency, around scripture and interpretation. I think all of those pieces are, are so um, enlivened the covenant today.
if someone were to ask me in a nutshell, what are the key sort of practices of pietism? I always point to Spainer's Pia Desideria. And in fact, I always say, if, if the covenant wanted to, to do church, keep, you know, renewing church vitalization, just go back to Spainer's six points, because he was making those points to renew hope um, in a devastated context where religious wars were, were making people not want to, right, um, activate their faith, you know, believe that, that God is good. Um, and so his six proposals, you know, including more extensive use of scripture, um, establishing the common priesthood, meaning lay people participate in the life of the church, even lead, practicing faith and knowing that our faith is going to be our witness is based not just on our words, but more importantly, on our practices of love, um, paying attention to how we conduct ourselves when we fight. And so mm-hmm. the, the religious controversies was huge and, and we can damage our witness by fighting poorly with each other. Mm. Uh, And so that was an important piece as well. And then having trained clergy leading the church that were not just trained intellectually, but were formed spiritually and um, character wise. And then finally seeing the the place of preaching as, as edifying as a time to actually, so Spainer's preaching was targeted at the most, the least educated people. Um, not because he was trying to dumb down his sermons, but because he thought that if the least educated people, the most vulnerable people in his congregation caught the word, that they would be the best witnesses for the rest of the congregation. Because as we know, people who are more vulnerable, right, are, are more often the most faithful. And so those are the people he thought would be his, his yeast in his, con- in his congregation. Hmm. You know, actually, I found that pretty interesting um, because when I came, I remember reading that in your book um, on like, yeah, how pietists sought greater lay participation, um, which was actually a surprise for me because when I first came into the covenant, one of the things that like stood out to me was um, clergy and ordination process Mm because right from a non-denominational church, um, We didn't have any of that. And so I was kind of coming in a little salty, like, I don't count, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it was, I think it was, I was like, wait, but, you know, in in uh, in the covenant's pietistic roots, it is about lay participation. It's that, you know, it's not just those who are professional ministers. Um, it's not just up to them to really dive into the word and like live it out, um, right? Like living at, living from a place from the word. Um, and, and so, but then I, but I do recognize too, that, you know, you also did mention a a greater priestly accountability as well. Um, and that, and I think you mentioned in, I believe the intro where, um, you, you mentioned that, yeah, like, even though there's great, more participation among lay people, but it it still does support ordination. And Mm -hmm. so could you actually talk about that a little bit more? So a couple things. One, I think the support for ordination comes more from our Lutheran influences than the pietism influences, because many pietist groups were were basically um, empowering lay people to preach. And Johanna Eleanor Peterson is an example, right? Like she wasn't ordained, but she was functioning essentially as uh, an ordained clergy person would outside of the context of a formal church setting. 
So I think that it's, it is more the Lutheran piece that influences ordination, but that said, you know, um, the, the pietists weren't necessarily trying to break off from Lutheranism. They were trying to have a faith that wasn't just contingent upon being, you know, a citizen of the state and your baptism and mm-hmm. like, like Luther. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so they weren't, tr- and, and they didn't even do that radical of reforms, liturgical reforms, at least in the strands that influence the covenant. Uh, in fact, um, they, they kept their, their rhythm and, you know, lectionary readings and things like that, that they would normally draw from for worship. The difference was they had lay people reading scripture or participating in the act of worship and, and, and mm-hmm. not just clergy. So it was the participatory piece that came in. Um, now, when you get into the more radical pietist groups, which, um, you know, which some people actually would put Johanna Eleanor Peter- Peterson in, then you have more of a breaking off of the established church and splintering off without that kind of connection that people like Spainer had hoped to keep. As you're naming the conventicles as kind of a key marker, and I, I think I kind of understand how radical that was in that era. Can you talk about the legacy of, of that that leaves us today? Like, it feels like kind of as Jane's saying about ordination, like, boy, the, the story changes, right? There's a lot of years in between. But like how we read the Bible today is kind of maybe at the center of some of our worst culture wars, right, in the church. So, I mean, the Covenant's, you know, resource paper on scripture captures what I think the best of our pietistic heritage is. And, 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 and it has five points, right? The five points are that we read faithfully. So we believe that we come, when we, when we come to scripture with faith and listening and hearing and the kind of obedience that, that reading the word is going to change us and it's going to change the way we interpret and, and we will read back into scripture. We will read scripture. Scripture reads us those phrases. Um, And so that, that piece is very, I think, influenced by pietism. The second one is that we read communally, meaning that no one person has all of the answers. And this is, this thread has been clear and present throughout the covenant's history. You know, even when we have sort of more progressive conservative or fundamentalist neo neo orthodox sort of arguments in our history the the fact that we read communally and not just individuals and not just devotionally by oneself mm-hmm. was based in that the fact that that the reader's context matters mm-hmm. right and they bring something to the text so mm-hmm. reading communally is the next one the the next one is that we read rigorously and this gets at Spainer's point that pastors um, and and leaders should be trained in seminaries and should know you know the the tools the best tools at our disposal for interpretation and those should be part of the uh, the work of interpreting the text and then the last two are are holistically meaning we read texts against other texts or within the whole of scripture and we look at the trajectory of liberation that we see in scripture when we read against that or within that trajectory and then finally reading charitably is is not only um about you know reading scripture looking for love like augustine says if you if your interpretation of scripture comes out to love of god and love of neighbor you have read it right if it doesn't you have read it wrong Right. Mm. So that's part of what charitably means, but charitably also means that we don't, 
marginalize or or minimize the voices and interpretations of others in our communities and 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 say that they're you know they have a low view of scripture right or things mm-hmm. like that are not reading charitably mm-hmm. so those five points and then of course with emphases towards um, grace transformation and mission the, all of those things come straight out of our heritage they're the best of, of who we are in the interpretive community and I think those things anchor, and help us to avoid the problems of, of weaponizing scripture, Kathy, that you're talking about, or reading scripture to simply confirm my own view, as opposed to being receptive to how it takes life and shape in the community. And so the last thing I'll say about this that I think is so important, and we need to work on this as a denomination, and that is when we read scripture faithfully and, and hearing from the community, and when it transforms us and changes our life, we become living authoritative connections to the text. In other words, how do I read my story in scripture, right? How does Michelle read her story in scripture and hear from the community and use the tools and all that stuff that that I just talked about? And then my life becomes, that's what the living word is. And so when we talk about questions, anything from race to LGBTQ questions, you know, all of those things, how are people who are directly impacted by these topics, right? How are they reading and finding themselves in scripture? And we need to be listening to that because mm-hmm. our lives are tethered to the word. And that's part Amen. <laughs> Man, that's so good. Yeah. I think that was definitely like, like an invitation that I felt that was coming through, right? Like number one, to not only be reading, the word, but like to read the word together and like how much of it, it's just half the experience of reading the word and, and sensing how the whole, how it's resonating with me and how the Holy Spirit's transforming me. But that's just part of the, that's just part of it. The other part is hearing. I love it. Yeah. Like hearing from others and what new perspectives do they bring in because of, because of their contexts rather than I forgot how you worded it earlier, but basically like how much do we listen to others or read the word wanting to be affirmed in what we already think rather than letting it expand our imagination of what's possible with God and what it really looks like to be living from the word. Yes. So, and surely there are things that all of us have missed surely. Mm -hmm. And, and surely God is doing a new thing. That is what living means. God is a dynamic God. God is not dead. Yes. And the interpretive community reminds us that of that and should remind us of that. Mm. Oh man. Yeah. Living means that God is doing a new thing. I love it. The little aside, I feel like this discussion of how we read text feels like very core to, to what I, why podcast matters today. Right. Like, and the way you're fleshing it out, Michelle, I, I forget that it's so full and rich until I hear you say it again, but okay. So I'm just going to ask this and we can decide if we want to just delete it. Um, but one thing I was struck by as I was uh, looking through your book again, is that um, that you say pietism was vital to the origins of evangelicalism. And I am more evangelical than I am pietist just because that's how I was formed. Um and that critique that pietists were too overly individualistic um, 
and maybe subjective or too emotional or something, the way you're framing it now doesn't, I'm like, no, that doesn't sound true. But, but there, I'm just wondering about those roots of our evangelicalism. Do, did their um, resistance to the state church lay the groundwork for us to be come as individualistic as we are in the American church, not necessarily just covenant, but in the American church as evangelicals, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I think, I mean, so pietism, you know, I mean, movements are always responding to something else. And so you always get these kinds of things that happen and the pendulum swings. And, and one of those was, you know, that pietism was reacting to the, the established church the religious wars that were happening, especially in Germany, and um, in some cases, the role of civil authorities in the established in the state church. So they're responding to that, um, the and the idea that, or responding to the fact that by by being baptized by and being a citizen, you were a Christian, and so there was no sense of the subjective engagement with faith, mm-hmm. and so this becomes a primary dimension of Pietism. And why it's so important for people to be reading scripture and participating in the ministry of the church and sitting in community and listening to each other. And a conversion is another theme that we haven't talked about. That's also um, um, that that transformation in, in Christ is another key theme that we see. And all of those were attempts to, you know, for individuals to have more agency around their faith, which is not new to pietism, of course, because Luther, you know, the unmediated nature of of faith was also part of Luther's program as well. I think um, other things that pietism, as you said, Kathy, is responding to is the sort of rigidity and the clericalism that sort of comes in again after the Reformation. And that kind of clericalism was what um, and even the way that fighting and conflict was happening and and so to have a faith that emphasized the emotional and spiritual piece uh, and not just the intellectual piece was another sort of response to to what was what was happening around them. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other one is this idea that hope is otherworldly, and of course, this escapism charges. And those were also there. And, and, and that led to some of the strong premillennialist worldviews that we have in evangelicalism. And um, these functioned to ensure and underscore the urgency for evangelism, evangelism and missions, which is also emerging in missions in a new form is emerging in the context of pietism. Mm. Right. And so these, I think those are kind of three things that, that, fu- that functioned as, as a corrective in their context and many correctives as this happens, they, they get taken to, well, I don't know if you would say too far, but they, they get entrenched and then they themselves become potentially issues that need correctives. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's what you're talking about with evangelicalism and individualism and the emotional pieces and, and even some of the missions mindsets that Mm -hmm. it's, on right. us, yeah. right, to save the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And do God's acting for God. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yep. And I think one of the things that is that evangelicalism also took up and got, you know, in bed with politics um, 
And that somehow the pietist ethic, this is why I wrote on pietist ethics. I, somehow that got lost. The sort of habits leading to character traits, virtue traits that then became a witness to who and what, who the church is and what the church is doing. You know, that feels like it it, it got lost and that's too much for us to go into. But I think that, that, that piece is, the covenant is trying to, I think, reclaim that social ethic that mm. as it relates to race and gender and, and immigration and mm. incarceration. Mm. What do you feel is the invitation today to the covenant church as we live into our pietistic identity and roots? I think spiritual maturity to do the work of spiritual maturity is even sort of grounds our ability to read scripture in a more imaginative and expansive way. And so spiritual practices and, and relational practices, I think we need to do some work in maturity. And that's frankly what our affirmation of freedom is about. It's, it's a spiritual practice that we, we spend time engaging each other in complex, nuanced, mature ways and even being corrected, I think, so I think that those practices would, we would do well to, to intentionally target those. I think also continuing to develop our social ethic as it's connected to the word and the issues that the covenant cares about and does so well with and and immigration and incarceration, I think are two of those and race and racism. And so I think continuing to develop those as they're connected to scripture would, is is key. And then I think the other thing is to, to those practices that I named in reading scripture, if we could, if we could really, you know, intentionally name, how are we doing rigor when it comes to LGBTQ questions? And how are we reading communally when it comes to LGBTQ questions? And how are we reading faithfully when it comes to immigration and charitably and politics, right? I think using those as our litmus test for how are we doing or a barometer for how we're doing would 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 be the invitation. Hmm. Dig into freedom and let's let's do it well and and have that be our witness. Mm-hmm. That we love each other even when we are in 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 struggle. I feel like this is very rich. I'm like, okay, can we just have this is what I want this podcast to be, right? Like these conversations of like, why does it matter? And not just in platitudes that are simplistic. I have all my like small detail questions that I want to ask you. I'm like, wait, so like faith, hope, or no, wait, was it? Yeah, faith, love, yeah. hope. I'm like, how is this distinctly coming in? Because I think when I first heard it, I'm like, but that's just the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is the three theological virtues, but um, I mean- so actually those three questions, how do we, how do we, um, believe mm-hmm. what must we believe? What, what must we do? And, and how must we hope those three questions that I use to structure my book, they actually come from Augustine's book on Christian doctrine, which is better translated on Christian formation. And he asked those questions in his prologue. And when it comes to reading scripture and what I love so much is that those were the three questions. And I don't know the connection of how those ended up as sort of the three questions that led the, the conventicles. Mm. 
Hmm. But it's so historical and, hmm. and again, so enlivening because they, I, I see those three questions is around the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. So hmm. it's a pulling together the strands of, of the history of the church, what's in scripture, what we know, the virtues that are named very clearly in scripture, the theological virtues, and then applies them to people interpreting the text. Yeah. So it's distinctly covenant, I think, because it was used in conventicle groups as the three questions to to read together. I just wanted to say thank you for your time. And also in your book near the end, I read your interview with Gary Walter and John Weborg. Uh One of the things Gary said was, right, like, yeah, like when he talks to people, like, and as people, as people learn more about the covenant, they realize like, wait, like I've, that is me. Like I've been pietistic without knowing it all this time. Um, and I think like for me, as, as I kept like learning more, like getting more clarity on what pietism is, it, it has been really life-giving to kind of realize like a lot of the seeds that God's planted in me along the way, as I've been reading the word and engaging in dialogue with others, um, that it, it is in line um, with, with pietism. And so I think that's really exciting. I think the other part, and I just want to, we've, we've mentioned this earlier, but I just want to take the time to reiterate it again is, um, is that it, it is a community act. Hmm. Like it's not just individual, like the, like part of what makes this work is the opportunity to decenter ourselves and to listen to another person's story and to get absorbed by that. Hmm. Um, and I think something that I've been growing in more awareness of is how I think as the covenant keeps living into diversity, that we're just going to continue to see more of an expansion of pietistic expression. Um, you know, as, as different people come in, um, we will see more and more different expressions. And, and so therefore, you know, we're, we're actively involved. We work out our faith by being actively involved. It's not come to understand what pietism is. And then we then live that out, you know, it's, it's that journey. And so, so yeah, so I think, I think this has been, this has been a really rich conversation for me personally. So thank you so much. Likewise. I love what you said. All of, all of that. <laughs> thank you friends for joining us for the love the cove podcast. We'll be posting new episodes every other week. If you're interested in sharing your story on when you felt like you were covenant, send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye.